Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's a people's voice committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movements. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Good morning. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> right. Um, good morning, uh, listeners. You're listening to another week of Green Left Weekly Radio, um, where we're going to be bringing you the kind of latest in activist news and about the different campaigns and some political analysis from you know a radical kind of left wing perspective on you know how we can fight for a better world today. Um, we have a pretty well, not a completely packed program. We have two interviews booked. But before I kind of announce what we have coming up, um, I'd like to acknowledge um, that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the Wandry land of the Kulin Nation. Um, I'd like to pay our respect um, to elders past and present um, and that this always was, um, always will be um, Aboriginal land. Um, I just want to talk, I guess, some headline news that's come off the top of my head. Um, there's one news story I kind of want to mention, um, and this was actually just reported on SBS um, a few days ago, um, and I had shared it on social media, but um, there's a bit of a, a bit of an outrageous sort of example of, you know, how um, you know, racist our country is. But there's been a recent announcement that in within the Northern Territory, um, they're looking at in, you know, those so-called at-risk schools in the Northern Territory that, you know, I'm a juror, uh, you know, usually a majority of um, – usually have a majority Aboriginal. Um, the Northern Territory um, government is looking at, you know, having police officers be present on the, on the, at those schools, which I just think is absolutely outrageous. Um, police have no place in schools. And then when you look at the example of the United States of having, you know, police officers being present at school, it's been used nothing more, you know, for, to, you know, to racially discriminate against African-American students um, and to harass them, which I just think, yeah, it's completely make. Um, also in another problematic area, um, the Scott Morrison government, I, I don't have the complete figures off the top of my head, but the Scott Morrison announced that they're going to be um, putting millions of dollars in uh, into giving public money to private schools. Um, Scott Morrison justified this decision on the basis that, you know, we need to give, uh, these are all the kind of like the buzzwords that um, politicians like to use, um, we need to give parents choices, um, uh, diversity in education apparently, um, flexibility, um, you know, we're in a situation where, you know, there are private school, where there are public schools that have, I mean, we're getting into summer soon, probably a few months after spring, uh, after spring is over, a month after, after spring, um, and there are schools which have no proper air conditioning. And, I, you know, I've had this experience working at a public school where, you know, there was 
a public school which had absolutely no air conditioning whatsoever and it was un, completely unsuitable um, for New Orleans, where as the next day, um, because I work for a private contract and um, for an after-school care company and um, they transferred me to different schools, etc. I worked at another private school during the summer and it had very nice air conditioning. <laughs> uh, and you can just tell the difference between... So a school like that, um, you know, they're... Their public schools are struggling with basic resources, and our government is announcing that you know these private schools, which already have plenty of money enough already, are already giving all the basic needs that um, students um, should have, um, should get more extra money. It's mm. um, ridiculous. You have any particular thoughts on that, Zane? Well, just, yeah, look, most like the majority of people in this country I went to a public school, and. This is going back a few years now, but, you know, all the textbooks are falling apart, chairs are falling apart, you know, it's obviously the school has to make do with a pretty limited kind of budget, and a lot of the resources there are quite stretched, and then there's truckloads of cash being loaded into private schools, yeah, it's a joke, Mm. they shouldn't get any money. Yeah, um, and uh, in some just going in for another kind of um, news story that's um, made the headlines recently um, is uh, following on the we've been talking we talked a bit you know been talking about every kind of um, in, as part of this segment of the program before we speak we've talked about the kind of au pair kind of controversy with um, Peter Dutton and. Um, Peter Dutton, to give a bit of back, um, um, to give a sort of recap what's happened, um, Peter Dutton, you know, has claimed that, you know, he had received no personal benefit from the decision and apparently he doesn't know the people involved in in who he, um, like the employer of this um, au pair that he helped out um, using his, in his capacity as a Im, um, immigration minister. Um but there was a majority. Um, there was a Senate uh, a report, uh, a Senate um, committee kind of investigation of this, and you know it is given. Um, it is quoted. Um, the majority report from the Senate committee said, given his definite answer in the House of Representatives, it is um, the view of the committee the minister misled Parliament in relation to this matter, and and so you know. That this is this is kind of where it's at, and um, as a result, it's quite clear, you know, based on the evidence that you know Peter Dutton has misused his powers. Although I don't even think that's this. To be honest, um, I would consider this whole thing, this whole scandal with Peter Dutton and the old pair, is actually the probably the lowest of his sins. I honestly think. I mean, mm-hmm. his compared to the whole, you know, running offshore torture camps thing. Yeah. I think, yeah, this ranks on a very low ground. But, of course, in the eyes of the Australian Parliament, um, this is actually a big crime. Um, and so um, the Greens and the Labor Party um, um, yesterday attempted to move a motion of no confidence in the Home Affairs um, um, Minister, Peter Dutton, after this tabling of the Senate report. Um, and it ended up uh, losing by one vote, Um it would have it could have almost been carried if um, with just two more votes, I imagine. Um, but yeah, he just lost by one vote. But it just does show how fragile um, Peter Dutton's um, position um, in Parliament is at this point. Um, I mean, it would be good to see him gone, and you know, it's a. But I do think um, it's interesting. Uh, it's interesting that I think that um, 
despite all this controversy, um, Scott Morrison doesn't appear to be willing to take any kind of real action on the matter. Um, but you know, you could you could probably, I mean, just thinking from the from the perspective of you know politicians and their own self interest, it, it would appear logical that you know Peter Dutton is more of a liability uh, to the Liberal Party at this point, and then there's this inevitable. Well, I mean, Scomo is in the Prime Ministership, but for the grace of Dutton and his Murdoch overlords. So, so I mean, yeah, it's just the the precedent for Turnbull is that you send people at Dutton to the back bench, and <laughs> it's a matter of time before you get knifed. So. Yes. Uh, Morrison's probably, um, yeah, he's probably reluctant to to poke the bear that he's Dutton. Mm. So yeah, that's well, that's where that's where where things, I guess, are at in terms of this sort of circus that is um, the Parliament. <laughs> mm. um, now, I forgot to kind of um, indicate what we have coming up uh, on our program. Um, we're going to be um, having an interview with. Um, um, with Tim Gooden, um, who's the former secretary of the Geelong Trades Hall and also won Trade Unionist of the Year last year. And um, he's the lead candidate for the Western Region for Victorian Socialists. And um, for listeners' information, the Western Region covers Geelong um, going all the way to the west of the border, Ballarat, that kind of area. So they're going to be bringing socialist ideas into that particular region, um, where's the kind of major campaign um, that we've been covering on our program has been the um, Northern Metropolitan Campaign for Stephen Jolly. Um, so, yeah, we're going to be interviewing Tim Gooden to talk about um, their campaign. And um, I guess um, something... Speaking of Victorian socialists, we have we've printed out this sort of statement um, from... Let me get this statement. Yeah, it's a statement that was released by them on September the 17th and just might be a good way of kind of starting up a, a bit of discussion. Um, there was a recent kind of um, four corner, um, there was a recent four corners ex- expose on, um, on, on aged care and, you know, you know, the previews and leaks of the show made it clear that what, um, what many of us, um, this, is, this is quoting Victorian socialists, um, made clear what many of us know through family experience. Aged care is a disaster in this country with private operators crowding in at once, um, crowding in once the sector was deregulated. You know, minimum conditions were altered to suit profit-making operators. Expectation was then underfunded and then the neoliberal ideology of a self-regulating market infected the public service. And, you know, this has become something we are used to seeing, a vicious circle in which otherwise good people become defeated and nihilistic, transformed by the cynicism of the market relations. Um, you know, you know, I think one... Um, just going back to, you know, that whole Four Corners expose on the aged care, it was quite interesting, I think, that the federal coalition's government's kind of response um, is that, you know, we need to have an inquiry or some kind of royal commission into aged care. And I think it's such, you know, there's now talk. Did you, did you look at the, um, the Ken Wyatt angle on this? No, I haven't. So there was a thing that I read that was going around and it was talking about the Liberal MP from Perth or somewhere in Western Australia, Ken Wyatt, pretty sure he's of Aboriginal background. And um, Ken Wyatt was investigating defecting to the Labor Party, apparently. Hmm. And it was right about when he was seriously canvassing jumping ship to Labor that Morrison 
threw him a bone and said, oh, well, you can have this inquiry into aged care because that's either his portfolio or it's in some way an important issue for Ken Wyatt. So that was an interesting article because apparently that's that's got a fair bit to do with it. Yeah, and I think one of the one of the arguments that um this is a statement that Victorian socialists um have released is that you know, and this is something I agree with, and it's sort of why Sydney is that um something like aged care, something as essentially aged care, shouldn't be run by the whims of the market mm. um the market really is the problem um and you know it's not really market fairy it's really the po- the problem of actually commodifying something um mm. as essential as aged care and you know health and social care is a universal um social process oriented to the welfare and flourishing of human beings and i think you know i think it's quite clear this is an argument for why the sector should be you know run in public hands um you know, and yeah, it should it it should be adequately funded by super profits taxed on corporations, um, and that we you know we need to start thinking about in response to this inquiry, start thinking about um, what how can we can fight for a state level publicly owned aged care system and expanded and properly resourced. Um, so that's in um, all printed in Green Left Weekly um, for next week. So yeah, yeah, cool. All right, um, so we probably might play a few announcements and then we'll get on to our first interview with Tim Gooden. Alrighty, you are listening to 3CR 855 on the AM dial or online and on the phone this morning we have got Tim Gooden, the lead candidate for Vic Socialists in the Western Region area. Yeah. Welcome, Tim. Good morning, Tim. Good morning, how are you all? You're a bit yeah, quiet at the moment. Um, but, okay, I guess the first question um, we want to ask is, can you tell us a bit um, about the campaign that you're going to be running in the Western Region? Like, what's kind of your platform that you're going to be run- um, bringing to the Western Region? Well, the, 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 the main angle is to try and get as many people involved in, uh, in some form of activity. Um, but we're also having members' meetings um, to let the people decide what the main issues are. And, and how we should tackle them. Ideally, what would be good if we had got a campaign going up in each area of things that are important to them. So in Warrnambool, it might be the transport system. Uh, in Ballarat, it might be jobs. Well, I know in Portland, it's de- definitely jobs. Um, so really, it's up to um, uh, um, members in those areas, and we want to try and facilitate that. We don't just want to be a, um, a representative-type um, party. I want to be able to use all our resources, whether parliamentary or whatever, to um, to help communities to fight back against the austerity drive and the things that they're missing out on, uh, particularly in the western areas where it takes anything $60 up to get into Melbourne for specialist visits um, uh, because the, the health system in the, in the western areas um, really poor. And what do you think are, you know, from your personal opinion as a lead um, candidate for Victorian Socialists, what do you think are some of the kind of issues, um, some of the main issues you think are affecting um, workers and people in, say, you know, in the Western region kind of today? And how do you want to relate to those issues? And then the like, what was that? I'll relate to how will you relate to those issues and what kind of alternatives? What do, what do you mean? Which... Um... Like, what do you think are the kind of issues facing, um, you know... Oh, in, in general terms? Yeah, yeah, in general terms, yeah. Oh, sorry, yeah, yeah. Well, health I've already mentioned. That's that's um, that's, that's big on everybody's list. 
and jobs. Um, jobs is the next one. Uh, some people put up uh, roads as being an issue, but it's more the, the transport industry that's been putting that up. Um, for people who can't rely on the on the public transport system, uh, which is a, a big issue, there's only two or three trains uh, from from Warrnambool, and um, and they're not all suitable in the direction that you're going in. So I think um, uh, health, jobs, and transport are people's biggest things uh, around this area. Like in, in in Geelong, which is part of the western region, because it goes it's a big seat. It goes from Geelong all the way to the South Australian border, uh, and up to Ballarat and Horsham. Um, but in Geelong, like there's one in four 19 year olds that don't have work or any prospects of employment, uh, full full time employment. So that's one in four nine, 19, 20 year olds in uh, in the Cryo area. Um, that their, their future looks pretty dismal, and that's something that people should be really jumping up and down about. Yeah, what do you reckon state governments can do, Tim, to address that and to create jobs for young people and, and other opportunities? Well, you've seen um, the state government put in huge amounts of effort into infrastructure in and around Melbourne, so that's one component of it. But the long-term viability for long-term employment, because all those infrastructure jobs run out, the long-term viability would be manufacturing, and the best opportunities we'd have for manufacturing around here would be on renewable renewables, uh, whether it's renewable energy um, components for um, better and more efficient um, products, which is a little bit of that starting with carbon fibre, but uh, that's only taking up one very small... Uh, area and it's not really affecting the the rest of the western region. So there needs to be a serious plan put in place, a jobs plan, um, not only attracting other smaller businesses, but the state government actually setting up themselves um, and renationalising some areas. So, so why, for instance, can't the Ford factory be used for building electric electric, electric vehicles? Mm. I mean, there's no reason why the government can't do that. We used to have uh, train factories. We used to have aircraft, government aircraft factories. Um, there's absolutely no reason why the government can't just start building electric vehicles. I guess um, my kind of next question is: um, I want to I want to hear a bit more from you about. Um, Industrial relations um, and what kind of um, what kind of things will Victorian socialists be campaigning on uh, um, to fight for better industrial relations? Um, and, and and in terms of like you know how will you um, relate to the current kind of change the rules campaign by the ACTU? And you know maybe some of your personal opinion on what rules do you think need to be changed? Now look, at the end of the day, the change the rules campaign. Uh, is a, is a must. Um, it is all federal law in Victoria. Jeff Kennett got rid of all the state laws um, a long time ago, but there's a lot that the state government can do to support workers and to support that campaign against the federal government. Um, at the end of the day, the law, we've got to get off the back of unions. Um, we've got to give them the laws to allow them to do their jobs. The only way we're going to stop wage theft is if 
unions or wage inspectors can go into workplaces as they once could, as they once could, and make sure that people are being paid um, by the law. The other thing we've got to get away from is this casualisation, the gig economy and sham contracting. And that's all being slowly getting more and more prevalent um, because the laws blocking unions, the cuts to the Department of um, Industrial Relations or wage inspectors, uh, that doesn't exist anymore. And so bosses are just running rife with not paying um, the correct wages or pe- putting people permanently on casual. Um, and the Victorian government can not only run a campaign to get rid of the federal laws, but can also put in resources to help the trade union movement in Victoria to overcome the last 20 years of attacks and removing our rights and conditions. Hmm. Um, and guess another question I want to ask is um, if you um, if you were um, elected um, in in the Western region, um, how would you use your position as a socialist um, to support you know the grassroots movements and the workers movement etc. Um, to yeah. you know in well one thing for sure is I won't be sitting in some shitty little office somewhere waiting for people to come in with a complaint. Um, I'll be using the parliamentary resources, including most of my the wage that they give politicians. So I'll be taking the wage of a carpenter, which is what I am now. I live on that now. I can live on that in the future. All the rest of the money will go into community campaigns to change uh, laws or get better conditions or services in, 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 the, in the regional areas. So I'll be travelling around and setting up campaign committees um, democratic campaign committees where the people in that uh, town or that area will work out the campaign's priorities that they need and I'll be providing the resources out of the out of the well, parliamentary allowances and etc to help those um, campaign committees to organize and to push for the changes in their areas because at the end of the day the strongest thing that has an impact on government is grassroots campaigns where the majority of people are calling for something and they're they're getting in the face of governments and they're demanding it. Um, Ultimately, those campaigns win um, and the governments hate that. They hate any um, grassroots organisation. They don't want to be accountable um, to that sort of thing. They're quite happy to have dinner with the big big end of town and all their lobbyists, but... um, they, they really hate it when the when the community get together and start demanding things that aren't always in the interest of big business, like um, fracking, for instance, and um, uh, unconventional gas or transport systems. Um, uh, we want public railway system down around the Ballerine um, that's frequent and free. Yeah. Um, governments don't want to provide that. Because there's no there's, there's no there's no money in it for big business. Mm. Uh, All right. Do you have any questions, saying you want to ask? Oh yeah, just coming back to that question of jobs in the Western Region, um, the Zero Carbon Australia Energy Plan about renewables that came out close to ten years ago now. Yeah. Uh, a lot of that that infrastructure is in that Western Region area, particularly wind farms and. It's mm. not just the manufacturing, but there's also grid upgrades and um, uh, operating and, and maintaining those once they're built. So 
yeah. yeah it's, it seems like that's part of the way forward um, for, for it, it, it definitely is. And the, the state government at the moment is putting in six new wind farms, um, but I think we've missed an opportunity. That's it's all being imported and coming through the port of Geelong, which is great for the port workers down here. They get a bit of infrastructure and logistics, but um, there's no manufacturing in it. Hmm. Um, so the repairs, the renewal of it, etc., uh, should be relocated um, here in Victoria. Um, it's, it seems pathetic that you, 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 you erect something that's um, made overseas, and then um, every time it needs repairs or servicing, it's just, that's got to come in from overseas as well. So um, local infrastructure, whether it be renewal, renewal of energy or not, um, should be made by um, the, the workers in that area, whether it's down at Portland or whether it's here in Geelong. Um, there's got to be some spin-off and job creation for young people. Otherwise, there's no future for them. Mm. And I guess, in a related way, how important do you think it is to go back to public ownership of the electricity sector as we move beyond coal and get into renewables? Well, uh, that, that ultimately has to happen. Um, the state governments now, the South Australian government toyed with it a little bit last year, uh, a couple of years ago, threatened people with it. But at the end of the day... Um, stuff that is that important to society should be renationalised and brought back into public ownership. Transport, health, electricity, all those big things that affect everybody. Uh, um, Why should we be getting ripped off by private companies um, for a service that is part of the very fabric of our society? And which, in most cases, we paid to build. What do you think of this argument that some people put forward that you can't unscramble an egg. Once things are privatised, that's it. You can never bring them back into public ownership. Oh, what a load of rot. Um, the state government has done that several times, usually in the form of bailout um, or buyback when a company's collapsed. So, for instance, the railway lines all up through the northwest of Victoria were sold off. Um, when they deteriorated so badly, about seven years ago, a grain train tipped over, you might remember, uh, spilling all the wheat everywhere. Um, the owners of those railway lines uh, hadn't maintained them and weren't going to. So the government had to, had to buy them back, and they're now being rerun again as, um, uh, as, as pu- publicly owned property. Um, and I, I think in a lot of cases, there shouldn't even be compensation. Mm. The government should just take them back and say, look, you've, you've been on the gravy train long enough. Um, now you look at that, look at the roads, the, the, the tolls. Um, they're making billions and billions of dollars a year out of people just driving around Melbourne. Uh, and um, like, I don't think there should be a, a, a toll at all. But um, at the very least, it shouldn't be going to the private sector. It should be going to the public. Mm. The last question I want to ask is um, how can people, if there's any listeners in the Western region here, get involved in your campaign um, and find out more? (laughs) There's Western region at um, Victorian Socialists on Facebook. Uh, You can have a look at us, um, get get in touch with us on Facebook. For those that aren't, um, my mobile number has been made public on the website. Uh, You can give us a call. Uh, or you can um, pop into the campaign office at 127 Meyer Street in Geelong, 
which is actually upstairs in Trades Hall, and um, uh, and pop in there and see us on pretty much any afternoon of the week. Hmm. Weekend. All, All right, right, no worries. We'll uh, we'll uh, let you get back on site uh, and keep keep chippying away. Oh, right, well done. Thank you very much. Have a good day, everyone. All right. Cheers. Cheers, bye. Um, yes, Tim Gooden there from uh, former Secretary of Geelong Trades and Labor Council and now lead candidate for Victorian Socialists in the Upper House uh, seat of Western Region. Yeah. All right, we'll play a quick announcement then move on to some news from Green Left Weekly. All right, you're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio. Um, it is 7.33 a.m. on the 8.55 a.m. dial. Um, we just interviewed the lead candidate um, for Victorian Socialists in the Western region, um, Tim Gooden. Um, now, I want to move on to talking a bit about some updates um, on the BDS campaign in support of Palestine. And, you know, there's been a number of interesting kind of developments, I think, that have happened in this area. Um, there's been a number in the kind of light of kind of like, you know, the bold call for protest against Israel's crimes of apartheid. Um, yeah, um, the US-based pop band. Well, actually, they're not a US. This is actually wrong. Um, this is written in the article. They're not actually a US-based um, pop band. I mean, they're actually based in Canada, as far as I know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm confusing myself. Of Montreal, which is the name of a Canadian city, I presume they are based in Canada, um, although maybe they're not. But either way, um, they've of Montreal have dropped out of Israel's media um, met, met, media festival on um, September fourth, um, just days before it was set to begin. Um, and you know, this follows the cancellation of headliner Lana Del Rey, who nixed her performance on August thirty um, first. Um, you know, supporters, you know, of the boycott, divestment, and sanctions campaign BDS targeting Israel have had urged her to cancel performance. And now, seventeen artists, more than one third of the festival's original international um, lineup, according to um, Palestinian campaigns, have dropped out after sustained appeals by Palestinian. And international activists to respect the court of boycott Israel, and I think Of Modero, um had some great um, had some great statements to say about that, and said after exhausting all the different possible um, ways of justifying plain Israeli party festival, while the political and military leaders of the country continue their murderous and brutal policies against the Palestinian people, we came to the realization that there is no actual appropriate move other than to cancel the show. And then they kind of added on that, you know, now is not the time for escapism and, and celebrations. Now is the time for activism and protest against Israeli apartheid, Israel occupation of the West Bank and the human rights atrocities that are carried out every day in Gaza by Israeli forces. And, of course, the band added that to ignore the core, to stand up in support of an impressed group of humans is one of the worst things one can do. Um, and so there's... You know, there's um, there's a lot. Um, that's that's kind of the current situation. I mean, the media festival was meant to actually happen a few weeks ago, I think, but um, with more than half the artists um, cancelling, I don't. I imagine it wasn't really much of a festival, and I think it is quite an exciting, a good development in the context of the, of the strengthening of the BDS campaign. Mm. Um, and now to move our eyes to um, the issue of Eurovision, um, because Israel won Eurovision, although I had no idea why Israel is even in Eurovision, although the yeah. question could be raised and for Australia. It. Yeah, well, yeah, well I, it's just ridiculous. Yeah. Australia is clearly not part of Europe. Well, 
some people as part of our national identities do think we're part of Europe in some way. Yeah, and those people are deluded and wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we're, um, we're part of Asia. We're part of the broader Asian region. Yeah. And we're part of the Pacific. We are not a part of Europe. It's just not <laughs> it's not a thing. Yeah. So now um in light of the whole um, Eurovision being ho- held in um, Israel, um, Australian artists are joining more than 140 international artists in the call for a boycott of Eurovision 2019, as reported by BS in Australia. Um, and, you know, inspired by the kind of art, uh, by the artists um, who refused to perform in apartheid South Africa, um, you know, there were Palestinian artists and cultural groups have called for non-violent pressure in the form of boycotts in Israel until it complies with its obligations with international law. And I think um, to give um, an, some prominent Australians who have signed so far onto this kind of international statement of, um, of an Israel boycott of um, Eurovision, um, so far include Crowded House's Nick Seymour, former Triple J host and writer Helen Razor, and hip-hop artist and judge in this year's contest, El Fresh, The Lion, um, who is the writer, director, and multidisciplinary artist, um, um, Candy Bowers, and Sydney-based contemporary Aboriginal artist, Black Douglas. And, you know, they say here that Israel's long record of outgoing discrimination and its decade-long breaches of international law and human rights means it's entirely inappropriate for next year's song festival to go ahead in Israel, said Samar Saboy, um, the award-winning Australian play, play, um, playwright and um, spokesperson for the Australian campaign to boycott Eurovision. And so I think there, there is, this is quite, um, you know, this is quite a good, there's, there's basically a, a clear campaign to urge SPS to not broadcast um, or participate in Eurovision 2019. No, you know, you know, we, and, you know, we... We urge SBS not to participate or boycott Eurovision 2009 if it is in Israel. We love SBS and we love Eurovision, but surely human rights are more valuable than a song contest. Surely international um, law is more important than advertising dollars, as, um, as quoted by um, by BDS Australia. And BDS Australia has launched online has launched this online petition, and of course, you know. This comes in the wake of all these sort of prominent international musicians who have refused to perform in Israel. And, of course, these artists include Shakira, Lord, Lauren Hill, Shakti, Massive Attack, Roger Waters, Patti Smith, Annie Lennox, Brian Eno, Eno um, The Pixies, First and More from um, probably known from Sonic Youth, and Elvis Costello and Mon Manaz. And, of course, um, ending on this, El Fresh the Line said, as an artist and a musician, I don't see how you're can achieve its goal of bringing the world together through music by having its 2019 competition in Israel while Israel continues to violently, um, violently occupy Palestine. Um, and just to just to um, to end this, um, BDS Australia is seeking your support and can be contacted at on, um, contact at bdsaustralia.net.au or via Facebook slash forward slash BDS in Australia. Yep. Um, so that's, um, that's sort of a um, continent. Um, now, the next thing I kind of want to talk about, maybe we'll give a few... Actually, it might be good. Maybe we'll go play a quick song and then move on to our second interview. So we'll just have a bit of um, time to have a bit of more substantial discussion of, our, of another news item. Yeah, cool. Sounds good. I might chuck on a little song 
Bye. Something a little heavier for you there on a Friday morning at uh, quarter to eight. That was Black Panther by Dispossessed. All right, on the phone right now we have Tanya Davidge, who is the president of Our City, Our Square, fighting to defend uh, Fed Square's public place from corporate intrusion. Uh, welcome, Tanya. Oops. Sorry, Sorry there Hello, you go. Welcome, you? Tanya. Thank you. How are you? Hey, uh, we had a bit of a mess up there. All right. Um, so, Tanya, can you give us a bit of a summary of a, what the kind of current situation of this sort of Apple store in Fed Square um, is um, is at? Absolutely. Well, uh, currently it's going ahead. Um, the government uh, haven't told us otherwise, um, but we know that there's a state election coming up, um, so we'll be advocating and lobbying government to reverse the decision. Um, in terms of heritage, the National Trust have nominated Federation Square to the State Heritage Register and Heritage Victoria are currently assessing that nomination and we hope that they'll proceed with the nomination and uh, in the next couple of months they'll open up for public submissions on that. And what what is um, can you tell us a bit more about the Our City Our Square campaign that is being run? What is kind of like the alternatives um, you're kind of I'm um, put, putting um, as a kind of alternative to this idea of an Apple store being built in Federation Square. Um, well, we really uh, don't see any alternatives at the moment. Um, we're really interested uh, as a group to foster um, conversation about and advocate for public space and Federation Square. And we're really here to kind of act as a voice for the people who've been cut out of the process, uh, basically, the citizens of Victoria, uh, due to the way the planning process uh, has come about. Um, and, you know, we'd love the government to reverse the decision. We know that it's actually deeply unpopular. We've got over 100,000 signatures on petitions opposing the store. Yeah. And actually, um, before I ask you kind of a question about sort of the importance of um, defending Fair Ocean Square and public space. I kind of want to ask a quick question, just a bit of a contrast. What has been sort of the position of the local Melbourne City Council on this Apple Store and Federation Square and sort of what is sort of the state government's relationship with that? Because I know there's been a lot of history of sort of state government sort of overturning, um, you know, overturning sort of planning kind of... um, Mm -hmm the planning powers of local councils and sort of what is the sort of what's sort of happening there <laughs> mm. well it's quite interesting the three stakeholders the three key stakeholders identified in the civic charter that fed square is governed by are the people of victoria uh the state government but also the city of melbourne um and the city of melbourne were cut out of the process as well uh, and they um are very upset about that the councillors uh, voted unanimously to um, ask the state government to reconsider. They also voted uh, unanimously just recently, um, which was on more planning basis, but the um, to request more information on the documentation that Apple has provided. Um, Fed Square is really important to the City of Melbourne because the City of Melbourne doesn't have a huge amount of open space within uh you know, the grid itself. And Fed Square actually sets a precedent um, for public space across Melbourne um, and also nationally and internationally. And can what what is like the... um, Can you comment a bit more on sort of the importance of um, this public space and what what it kind of means to the community of Melbourne? Mm -hmm. Um, 
you know, if you think about what Fed Square does and the way it acts, there's no other public space uh, in Melbourne that acts like it. You know, it's a it's a place for gathering. It's where we can all go. Um, you know, watch fantastic sporting events. It's where we can go to protest. Um, and it's where we can go to see cultural activities. Um, the Melbourne Festival will open on October 3rd, so in a couple of weeks' time, with the Tandarum, which is an amazingly uh, beautiful ceremony. It's a, it's a welcome to country and a meeting of the five Kulin nations. Um, and so if you kind of imagine that ceremony happening uh, without an entire building in the square and replaced by an Apple store. I think it's really, really problematic. It places um, retail and Apple product over people and the civic and cultural activities that occur in the square. Yeah. So is it your view that, um, that you know, the Federation Square should remain, um, simply put it, a cultural kind of a public space and only offer sort of co- uh, like, you know, cultural precedent um, sort of serve um, things like, you know, ACME, the museum and that, and it should basically, is the position of our city, our squares, there should be no place for like, you know, commercial stores like Apple. I mean, you know, they could just have easily decide, well, we're going to build a Walmart there or some, or yeah. Costos, that kind of thing, is the kind of position mm-hmm. of your campaign that we don't, there's no, no room, they don't, you don't want any kind of commercialisation of the space? Um, well, the reality is, is there's already some commercial activity that goes on in the square. You know, there's bars and there's restaurants. Um, but these kind of things facilitate social interaction. You know, you go down there, you go have a drink, you go meet friends, you go meet family. Um, you know, you might go to the NGV and then you might, you know, have, uh, you know, have lunch or something. So that, I think those kind of commercial activities are really in alignment with certain cultural and civic values. I think the main problem with Apple and its kind of corporate nature and its, um, you know, it's not only Apple, it could be Nike or, as you mentioned, it could be Bunnings or JB Hi-Fi or any of these things. Um, there's a much more, you know, there's much more emphasis on um, selling product, uh, selling you something. So when you go into the square, you're no longer a citizen. You've gone in there to buy something. You're a consumer. It's a very different thing. And an Apple store, I think, would work much, much better uh, in the CBD, you know, in the kind of more business and retail district. Um, Zane, do you have a question you want to ask? Uh, yeah, you just mentioned, Tanya, that uh, Fed Square sets an important precedent locally in Australia and, and internationally. And I was just wondering if you could expand on that a bit. Uh, how do other cities in Australia compare? Do they have something like Fed Square and, and other major cities around the world? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a really interesting question. Perth has just really recently opened a beautiful public square called Yagen Square. Um, maybe about three or four months ago. And their planning minister, um, she was quoted in the paper, it was kind of lovely. She kind of said, as much as I don't want to invoke Fed Square, Yagen Square will be a space for the people of Perth to gather um, like Fed Square is for, for Melburnians. Mm. Um, and I've chatted to people over in New Zealand who work in you know, the Wellington mayoral office and um, they say, you know, we look to Melbourne for this fantastic public space that it's created. And, you know, and they were shocked when I told them about the Apple Store. And, uh, you know, you, you think about spaces in um, America and they don't have, you know, there's not a lot of, like, similar spaces to Fed Square um, there either. And so we have this really, really unique, important 
a piece of our kind of cultural and public heritage and we need to make sure that we really keep on top of keeping it public. Yeah, for sure. Right. What has um, been some of the political support you've received um, from your campaign in terms of parties? Mm-hmm. Well, we're party apolitical, so we're talking to all of the parties. We've spoken uh, to the Liberals, we've um, written to Labor, um, the Greens are uh, truly in support of this, and um, we've also spoken to the Socialists, um, who are very supportive as well. Uh, Rohan Leppard, the councillor at the City of Melbourne, is a Greens councillor and he's been uh, leading the charge on council side. He's very upset um, about this. Hmm. Right, that's interesting to hear. Um, now, the next thing I kind of ask you, um, the last kind of question is um, how can people um, support your campaign or, you know, find out more? Like, do you have like a Facebook mm-hmm. page or something? Yep, we have uh, social media across social media. It's at our Fed Square is the social media handle and um, our website is www.ourcityoursquare.org um, and we send out uh, email updates and we will be uh, running our own election campaign so um, we can keep everybody updated if they sign up. Thank you very much, Tanya. It's great to have you on. <laughs> Thanks. And, no worries. Yeah, keep up the good work. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Cheers. Catch you All right. Uh, yeah, Lisa Davidge there, the uh, president of um, our city, our, uh, Melbourne. Sorry, what was the... Our, our city, city our square. square. Yep. <laughs> uh, yeah, fighting to keep Apple's um, grubby mitt off our Fed Square. Right, um, you're listening to Green Left Weekly. It's um, radio. It is 7.57 a.m. on the 855 a.m. dial. We just had um, Tanya Davidge um, on our studio, um, one on our studio over the, on the line, um, talking about the um, about the Save Our Federation School of Square campaign uh, from the Apple Store that's going to be built on it. Um, now, I just want to make a core quick announcement before we move on to um, the activist calendar, and that is um, that Green Left Weekly has um, actually launched a new support initiative, and if you have um, a copy of Green Left Weekly, there's actually an article um, that is about this new support initiative. Um, so, you know... Um, Green um, Green Left Weekly is now um, going away a bit from a, a, a paper kind of subscription model into a supporter model where regular readers can become financial supporters of Green Left Weekly. Um, and so, for example, kind of the different tiered costs we have, if you're on a limited budget, you can ship in as little as $5 a month and we'll send you a digital copy um, of Green Left Weekly each month. If you ship in $10 or more a month and you you and you'll get and you'll get a digital or hard copy of Green Left Weekly or both. It is up to you. And, of course, Green Left Weekly is a highly valued and respected and a reputation earned over more than 27 years. Um, so, yeah, there's a, that's um, the kind of a bit of announcement of the new support scheme that is um, being adopted in Green Left Weekly. Um, and, yeah, that's just um, what I wanted to kind of make a quick announcement for before we move on to the activist calendar which i'll get i'm getting ready now um so it's, it's really it's an activist media synergy isn't it Jacob? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 3cr and green left weekly together forever <laughs> now 
All right, so to, to give you some announcements of what's happening um, in terms of the activist calendar, um, there is a theatre show, um, Matriarch, uh, a, dam- a dynamic one-woman show that illuminates, illuminates um, the strength and resilience of four generations of Goomba Negri women from the 1940s to the present day. Um, and that's going to be um, $25, 5.30 and 6.30 p.m. from Saturday, September the 22nd to Saturday, September the 29th at the Art House at 521 Queensbury Street in North. Melbourne. Um, now, on from Saturday twenty second, um, the the um, I think the Nelson Mandela expedition, Mandela, my life, um, is going to be opening from ten am to five pm at the Melbourne Museum, and that will be running for quite a bit, I think, for a number of months. Um, it's probably definitely going to be worth going to. Um, there's this interesting rally, Rally Critical Mass. This is a call to action. Join the critical mass artists in a crowding of crucial ideas by taking to the street of Brunswick in a rally come public art happening and witness the critical mass and unite as a community. So it's at 3pm at the Siteworks um, at 33 Saxon Street in Brunswick. Sort of don't really know what that rally really is about, but... It looks interesting. It's sort of near my house, so maybe I'll check it out. Um, there's a public meeting on Saturday, September the 22nd. Um, don't deport Huon. Uh, Retinamese um, asylum seeker Huon um, is facing deportation in indefinite separation from her baby Isabella and husband Paul. And that'll be happening at 2pm at the Community Arts Centre, 45 Moreland Street in Footscray. And it's organised by the Refugee Action Collective. On Monday the 24th of September... There'll be the NUW Victorian Picnic Day, um, and they'll be at 10am at the Mooney Valley Racecourse. Um, on Tuesday, September the 25th, um, there's a film screening of um, Jirga, um, former, which is about a former Australian soldier, Mike, um, who's drew, who, during the tour of Afghanistan, accidentally shot a man who was unarmed and has never been able to forget. Um, determined to fight this most grievance of wrongs, Mike sets out to find the man's family and throw himself at the mercy of the village court of the traditional Afghani justice, the Jirga. And it's, this is followed by a Q&A discussion in this film, so that'll be at 6.45pm, Tuesday, September the 25th, at the Cinema Nova. Um, they'll also be happening on that Tuesday. There'll be a forum, Pentridge, What's Next, at the Concert Hall, 90 Bell Street in Coburg, and it's hosted by the Pentridge Community Action Group. Um, they'll be on Wednesday, September the 26th, um, there'll be a protest, hold AGL accountable for climate action. Um, AGL are still Australia's largest climate polluters. They paint themselves as green and clean company while remaining Australia's biggest emitter of CO2. Greenwash. Protest outside AGL's AGM at 9.45am at the Melbourne Recital Centre at 31 Street in South Bank. And it's organised by Quit Call. Um, just a funny, I uh, have a bit of a funny story. I once met um, someone um, at a party uh, who worked for AGL and it was a bit funny because I sort of put the pressure on him about all these kind of issues with AGL. <laughs> and um, generally, you know, his response, I mean... This guy was not a bad guy, of course, but he, he's generally kind of responses. You know, AGL is actually doing, you know, we're doing a lot of things, um, you know, to be more sustainable, etc. Basically, all mm. the greenwashing thing is basically all the just, stuff that no doubt management have drubbed into yeah, their drubbed whole in, workforce yeah, and the whole workforce. And so, yeah, he's he's probably completely unconscious of the fact that you know, the management and the upper manager just giving him all this sort of greenwashing kind of propaganda. Mm. Um, so, and also on Wednesday, September 26th, um, there'll be a Never Again, a community memorial for Lip Goni. Um, on September 26, 2000, um, 26, 2007, 19-year-old Lip Goni was beaten to a death in a 
racially motivated attack that followed a political scare campaign hauntingly familiar to what we are seeing now. And to mark the 11th anniversary um, of his death, they are asking to join them and the Af- 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 African-Australian community to stand as one and say never again to the violence that killed Leap. Um, they'll be at 12.30pm at the Parliament um, at Spring Street in the city. Um, that's on Wednesday, September the 26th. Mm. Um, they'll be on Thursday, September the 27th There'll be a public meeting um, Adani and the, new, and the War Over Call um, Quentin Burrs Ford talks about his new book um, And they'll be happening at the new international bookshop Shrades Hall, 54 Victoria Street and Carlton Staff And it's organised by Nibs um, from Thursday, October the 4th to Sunday, October the 7th, um, there'll be a Palestinian film festival showing the very best of Palestinian cinema from around the globe. The festival presents a unique opportunity to connect with and to get, get to know Palestine and Palestinians through film. And they'll be happening at the Simonova at 380 Ligon Street in Carlton. Um, on Thursday, October the 4th, um, there'll be a public meeting, um, Housing in Crisis, um, Stop the Public Housing Sales. Uh, a public meeting has been called by the Public Housing Defence Network with support from Moreland Council to inform the community about the dire consequences of the state government's public housing renewal program. And so they'll be happening at 6.30pm at the Brunswick Town Hall, corner of Sydney Road and Dawson Street in Brunswick. Um, there'll be a public meeting, Gillen Triggs um, speaking up um, at 7.30 um, at the FM Theatre, 188 Collins Street in the city. Um, and on Saturday, October the 6th, um, there'll be a diary launch, um, How to Make Trouble in Influence People. Um, this is uh, a... Uh, a free CR kind of related thing. Um, the diary features a radical event in Australian history for each day of the year, as well as stories and images covering Indigenous Australian resistance, strikes, street art, convict escapes, creative direct action, blockades, protests and occupations. And it's hosted by Ian McCrea, and it's going to be at the Old Bar, 74 to 76 Johnson Street in the city in Fitzroy. Um, fit on Tuesday, October the 8th, um, forum, um, there's going to be a forum, well, it's actually not, this is actually wrong. It's not Tuesday, October the 8th. Um, it's actually Monday, October the 7th. Um, there's going to be a forum on political correctness and the rise of the right. Um, and that's going to be, um, that's going to be happening, um, at the, at 7 pm at the New International Bookshop at Trades Hall, 54 Victoria Street in Carlton South. Um, there'll be, on Thursday, October the 10th, there'll be a film screening, Guilty, um, recreates the final seven, 72 hours in the life of Muruk and Sukumarin, who became an um, accomplished artist on Indonesia's death row. He was executed on April 29th, 2015, and this will be followed by a panel discussion at 7pm at the Cinema Nova. On Friday, um, October the 12th, there'll be a rally in March, Reclaim um, the Night, um, and this will be happening at 5.30pm at the Treasury Gardens, and the event will highlight the Royal Commission into Family Violence, the launch of Respect Australia and the drafting of the first Gender Equality Bill. And so it'll be happening at 5.30pm at the Treasury Gardens. Um, there'll be a film screening, Disaster Capitalism, a new documentary by best-selling journalist Anthony Lowston and award-winning filmmaker for Nurti, um, and that'll be happening at 7pm at the New International Bookshop at the Trades Hall. Um, on Saturday, October the 13th, there'll be a counter-rally to the March for Babies, opposed Bernie Finn um, opposing, imposing his anti-abortion religious beliefs and the state controlling um, re- reproductive choices. And so that'll be happening at 1pm at the Parliament Spring Street in the city. 
Um, and on Tuesday, October the 23rd, there'll be a rally, um, change rules at 10am, um, which will be happening at Trades Hall, Ligon Street at Carlton South. Okay, um, so yeah, that would be that's um, that's a summary of what's happening, um, I guess, in the activist calendar. We, and uh, it would be remiss of me not to play this particular announcement right now. Three uh, CR uh, releasing a new diary for 2019: How to Make Trouble and Influence People, which I announced before. But yeah, we'll play the announcement anyway. Ah. Oh. I've just been vaguing out here. I didn't yeah, get just play, enough. Just play, the annou- just play the announcement anyway. Yeah. <laughs> right. All right. Hey, you're on 3CR. We've got a new SMS number too 0488 809 855. So if you want to swing us an SMS, tell us what you're disgruntled about today. Tell us what you're excited about. Tell us what we're doing right. Tell us what we're doing wrong. Oh four double eight eight zero nine eight double five. Okay, so um, we've got there's a number of um, I think for the next um, ten to fifteen minutes, there's actually quite a lot of news stories um, that we want to have a bit of discussion about. Um, and this first um, news story is about um, the TPP, um, the Trans Pacific Partnership. And there was a recent announcement um, that the Australian Labor Party's um, parliamentary caucus, um, that is, um, that it will vote up um, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And this has led to an obvious kind of backlash um, with the Secretary of the um, Hunter Workers, formerly the Newcastle Trades um, Hall Council, Daniel Wallace, is resigning from the, the Labor Party. And, you know, Wallace posted a copy of his resignation letter on Facebook on September 14th, commenting, my good deed for the, for the day, finally realising that the shortcuts taken by the ALP usually lead to detour, detours which lead to dead ends. You know, he then added, still some good people in Labor, but I'll leave them to fight from the inside for what they believe in, and I'll just stick to fighting what, for what I believe in is in the best interests of workers. You know, speaking to Wallace on September the 19th, um, as quoted in this article in Green Left Weekly, um, he told me that since resigning, he has received many messages of support from Eunice. He explained how the Parliamentary um, Caucus had simply run roughshod over party members. National Conference made a decision that the TPP would not be ratified unless it met key conditions, but the caucus has overruled the rank and file and the ALP's national platform to support it. Um, the caucus announcement also pre-emptied the conclusion of two separate inquiries in the TPP11 bill. And, of course, Labor leader Bill Shorten tried to play down this kind of backflip in an interview with ben Barry Cassidy on ABC Insiders, saying what we'll do is, you know, we'll cop is to cooperate to see what the positives implemented and what we're and we're going to change the negatives if and when we get elected. What I'm not going to do is just oppose everything full stop. Um, I mean, that's just a, I mean, oh, how uh, delightfully open minded of you, Bill. I mean, what what it kind of says here, um, just a bit of a, um, I'm actually going to read the rest of the article, but I just want to go have a bit of a, a stop pause here, just a bit of analysis, um, a bit of my own analysis on this and saying probably might have some fear. And I think in in the Green Left Weekly article, it says here that, you know, following that um, line from Bill Shorten, you know, from the perspective on, of enriching the capitalist class and multinational corporations, Shorten is correct um, that the TPP11 has a lot to offer. And... But, you know, from the perspective of workers, unions, the environment and the health sector, it is a dangerous deal. And I think, you know, 
my view on this is, and this is really where where the kind of Labor Party's position itself, why they would vote for the TPP um, is partially for that reason because they know it's good for business, etc., mm-hmm. and they want to, you know, they want to, they don't want, they want to appease, you know, the capitalists in some way, um, because you know, imagine if. Um, the Labor Party um, were willing to stand by whatever left-wing principles they have or even just stand by their membership because really I think it's quite clear that their membership, um, the rank-and-file membership, the rank-and-file unionists and the un- trade union leaders that support them are overwhelmingly against TPP. Mm. However, with Bill Shorten in, in, in opposition, they don't want to jeopardise any potential chances of them getting themselves re-elected because if they were to vote against the TPP outright and oppose it, then that will position them um, uh, uh, under attack by the, the capitalist forces that want to see the TPP implemented. Mm. It's always the same deal um, on what, you know, why the Labor Party don't want to you know, vote for a humane refugee policy because it could impact on their future election can- chances because they're, they're always attempting – they never want to campaign. They want to use – they want to have some kind of left-wing-based support, but they always want to cander, cater to the right so that they don't jeopardise their chances of getting elected. Hmm. And, and in a way, you can kind of see why when you've got um, Rupert Murdoch just bumping over, bumping off prime ministers whenever he feels like it, whether they're Labor or whether they're Tory. So – you can kind of see where that attitude comes from. And if the only way to really oppose the power of Murdoch is to have a really people-powered party, mm. which in this case, the only way that the Labor Party could succeed electorally what at the same time as offending the ruling class and blocking things like the TPP is if they became an activist party. And they couldn't or, they, or they had someone like Jeremy Corbyn as their leader. Well, and, and I mean, that's part of Jeremy Corbyn's leadership is he wants to transform the, the British Labour Party into an activist party. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, a kind of, it's a kind of cowardliness and a kind of laziness that yeah. says we're just going to take this shortcut because mm. if we were to actually substantially opposed stuff that the ruling class wants, then we would have to gear ourselves up as a real yeah. fighting machine. And yeah. Well, I think, yeah, anyway, I think what we've gone into is that's sort of really the kind of logic I feel of the left within the Labour Party, but more or less it is quite clear that, you know, not to be too soft on Labour, the Labour Party really is just in some ways another capitalist party, mm. um, but it is also one, it is also a capitalist party with, uh, and this is what's contradictory, it is a capitalist party with a bit of, of left-wing kind of trade unionist kind of base that gives them electric support. And, of course, whenever um, capitalism is not going well and people are getting really pissed off by the Liberals, the Labour Party always ready to basically take government to kind of manage capitalism better to prevent, you know, the angry outburst of workers and and so on from the own the whole right-wing kind of policies of the Liberal government. Hmm. Well, I think it's really significant that Daniel Wallace... Um or leaving the Labor Party too because um, uh, lesser known fact, I actually went to the same primary school as Daniel Wallace and he he grew up about two blocks from my house Mm. and uh, yeah I was the sort of the more ratbag radical socialist from Hillsborough and he was the more Labor Party guy Mm. from Hillsborough 
Um, but he's more from the kind of right of the ALP. So I think it's significant. You know, the, the right of the ALP in a union movement context mm. is a little bit different to the right of the ALP in a parliamentary context. But um, I think it's very significant that he is... Yeah. Well, I have I have one kind of a bit of analysis to that because um interesting enough um there was some trade union um in Newcastle um that basically made a statement. I think it was the what trade union was it? It was um there was Bruce a Wallace from no, there was a trade union in Newcastle that made a statement. I think there were the meat workers. Yeah, there were the meat workers um, of Newcastle. Um, sort of, I don't know the complete name of the body, but anyway, this this particular union made a statement condemning um, Labor's decision to support the TPP. And what was interesting was, you know, it was all good. They they all opposed the TPP for mostly the right reasons, but. Then there was one particular line in there that um, made me a bit uncomfortable, but it was basically um, there's, there is some opposition to the TPP that is actually based on nationalism. Mm. Um, like it's based on this idea that, you know, in the age of globalisation, we're opposed to the TPP because it will undermine local Aussie jobs. Mm. Uh, it will, may, oh, you know, may, it'll, you know, it'll bring illegals to work in for us, that, that kind of thing. And so it is, um, it is that there is, it is quite clear that, you know, a lot of the right of the labour movement does actually oppose these dodgy trade deals on on a less principled basis, on on the basis of kind of nationalism mm. um, than anything else, and so that would explain why there would be some right wing elements within the labour movement that would be opposed um, to the TPP. Of course, it's still the right thing to be opposed to it, um, uh, and and you know it is it is a sh- it is a terrible thing that you know um, that. You know, bosses are able to explore four, four, five, seven visas to undermine working conditions, so on. But the problem with the kind of nationalist perspective, when you take a nationalist perspective on these issues, is that your target becomes the, f- the people who have the four, f- five, seven visas, yes. and not the actual bosses who are employing those workers. Because really, the most principled kind of left-wing kind of position you can take, and that issue is that you know we need is that everyone is a worker, and we need to fight for all the workers to have the same rights. Mm. as everyone else and that's what undermines the power of the bosses who are using who are creating another class of visas it's not the people who are holding those visas at the problem um it's the actual bosses themselves and the capitalists mm. who are using that class of groups to undermine those things yeah just on this topic too so i'm a member of the cfmeu and members have just been sent out a two-page survey and one of the questions is about visa workers and so the first part of it is: Should sham contracting, uh, should should the CFMEU take more action against sham contracting on building sites? Fair enough, that's pretty agreeable. Um, but then the second part of the question: Should visa workers be required to take photo ID to construction sites? And I'm like, why is the CFMEU talking about the need for? immigrant workers to have photo ID on construction sites. And I think that's that's the CFMEU version of playing into this nationalist mm. thing of blaming the workers. Yeah. Well, it's also, it's also following into a very um, legalistic kind of line of um, trying, like, you know, we just, all we need is, I mean, the limitations of this, if we, if we just go appeal to legalistic means um, 
to address issues of um, workers' exploitation, then the bosses just get to really just walk over you because the bosses have all the economic power to break the laws and just use the laws against them. Not that we should we should always be fighting for just laws that keep bosses to account, but there is a limitation in trying to um, fight for a, a legalistic loophole like, oh, yes, saying that, you know, we should kick off four thousand workers for not having proper ID, that kind of thing. It's not actually going to address the actual problem of four, five, seven visas, mm. um, and how the how the you know how capitalists are using them to undermine working conditions. Mm. Well, I just looked at this survey too, and I thought, you know, are we the construction union or are we Peter Dutton's border force? Like, mm-hmm. why are we looking at interrogating fellow workers and you know, oh, these documents are not in order. You know, you don't have the right photo ID. I just think it's it's a wrong line to take. And you're you're absolutely right. The way to tackle this is to make sure that. Immigrant workers have full work rights, which means that they should be able to have a permanent residency. Hmm. I think there's a lot of a lot of this. The whole basis of the four, five, seven visa thing is, oh, there's a shortage of workers here. Well, I wonder why that is. Wouldn't be because you've gutted TAFE over the last twenty years, would it be? No. But if there is really a shortage of workers, then those workers who are brought in to to fill that gap, then they should be given. they should be offered permanent residency and full working rights, mm. as you say, so they're not this yeah. kind of exploited underclass. Yeah. And now, for um, <clears throat> moving on to the um, moving a bit more further to this discussion. Um, now, on the question on the thing about the TPP, um, responding to the uh, just reading more a bit from this article, responding to the ALP's parliamentary caucus announcement that it would fix the TPP eleven if it wins governments, um, AFTI um, Nets Patricia. Um, Ronald said this would require difficult negotiations once the deals were um, it would be more have been more affected to delay implementation until such changes have been made and of course the Maritime Union of Australia responded to Labor's announcement expressing grave concerns on September 4th 4. Um, the MUA called on its members, the broader labour movement and the community to oppose the adoption of the trade union deal. Um, ACTU Secretary Salig McManus responded to the announcement of saying the ACTU and the union movement are disappointed by the ALP's decision. You know, Ma- McManus went on to say the ALP is now committed to serious and much needed reforms of our trade system to make sure that future deals benefit working people and are subject to real public and parliamentary accountability. And of course, Wallace is sceptical of short promises. Um, the LP was given an opportunity to fix the Fair Work Act when they were elected in 2007, but they failed miserably. There's no evidence they won't fail again with the TPP. It is commendable um, that, you know, unionists like Wallace have decided to leave the ALP to focus on organising and strengthening the union movement. And I think this ends with a line from um, the writer of the article, Susan Price from Greenleaf Weekly, that in the end, if we are going to defeat the TPP, 11, abolish the ABCC and hold any future Labor government to account. We will need a strong militant militant union movement freed from the grip of the ALP. And I think just a few kind of sort of issues. I still think that some of the union responses are falling a bit short because I actually think the reality is there shouldn't be no adoption of the TPP because my my understanding is there's no there's no you cannot modify the TPP to make it less exploitative for workers hmm. there's no way you can actually the whole fundamental basis of the TPP is to give more power to corporations it is to give more power to capitalists and it essentially is to give more 
all you could get within this sort of reform agenda is you could get some sort of legalistic concessions made within the TPP that would make things less bad for workers. But the whole overall thing is just bad news for workers and it mm. should the, – the, the, the cause of the union movement shouldn't be to pressure Labor to make some good negotiations with the TPP grant. It should be to reject the whole thing entirely. Yeah. And part of the problem with the TPP is it allows corporations to sue governments – uh, for breaking the TPP agreement. So uh, precisely the act of amending the TPP to make it less bad, in my understanding, is the kind of thing that corporations could sue a shortened government for and go, no, no, this was signed off on, you can't go back on it, and if you try and change anything, we're going to sue you. So the, the whole idea of fixing the TPP once you've signed on to it is a, is a sort of a denial of the very nature of the TPP. Yeah. It's this, a real bad deal. Yeah. This t- the TPP was also – it wasn't drafted by ordinary workers or ordinary people like us. It was drafted by, you know, top-end kind of bureaucrats, um, you know, capitalists and – you know, bosses. It was drafted by them behind closed doors because you know a lot of the TPP is actually just not known to the public. Um, a lot of the conditions and say it was all drafted behind closed doors, and they just left it to politicians at the top to negotiate the terms. Of this, where we have absolutely no say over what 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 this trade deal actually does, um, and there's absolutely no transparency and accountability. Hmm. Yeah, 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 that's right. 3CR, Green Left Radio, getting towards the end. What's uh, Have we got some final last little nugget of news to discuss? Well, um, the final kind of bit of news I want to, um, I want to kind of bring out is um, just following on from that announcement um, of um, the Morrison government's private um, school kind of funding attempt. Um, I just want to kind of let um, people know that the Australian Education Union have actually just put out a media release um, basically condemning um, the deal um, that... Morrison's putting forward and you know this is basically a cynical attempt by the Morrison government to buy votes for the next election at the expense of students in our public school the Australian um, public won't be fooled as to you know as to as this heats up as a may as a may a federal election issue and you know so you know you know we we Mr. Morrison um, may think he has settled the funding wars, but he is wrong. Um, uh, the president of um, the AU, federal AU said, we'll escalate our campaign 18 target seats, ensuring that parents across Australia know that it is the Morrison government which has abandoned public stu- um, school students. Um, so, yeah, just sort of, sort of mention that that statement just kind of got released and you can read it up online at, on the AU website. Word. All right, I think um, I'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning into the program this Friday. Um, I'd like to um, thank all our guests, um, including Tim Gooden and Tanya Davidge, um, for being on our program this morning. And um, I'll stay tuned for another week of Radical Radio um, and, uh, we've got when, uh, and for Green Left Radio next Friday at 7 a.m. Indeed, catch you then. Which will be on the grand final um, public holiday. <laughs> we this brings us to the end of the show you have been listening to friday morning breakfast with green left radio brought to you by the green left weekly newspaper which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first if you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.com 
www.ngbc.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it is only $10 for the first six issues. Repeats of the show and interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the 3CR website. Thank you for listening. You are tuned into 3CR Community Radio, 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3CR.